there are so many potential opportunities and amazing applications and that AI can be used for good. Like mm-hmm. I'm a huge believer in that, but I think that we need to always have our kind of ethics hat on when we're making these decisions because we can't go back. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership and strategy in data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thanks so much for being here on the show. Today, we're going to be talking about AI ethics, how it applies in different governments and different countries around the world, and also how organizations are coming up to the challenge of AI ethics, implementing frameworks, looking at it from a technical perspective around explainability, and also discussing bias and fairness in the algorithms decisions. For that, we're joined by Stephanie Kelly. She is a PhD candidate in AI ethics at Queen's University in Canada. Stephanie is also a committee member for the Ethically Aligned Design for Finance, which is part of IEEE. Her work in AI ethics has been focused on the financial services industry and how these organizations get aligned around their AI ethics frameworks, how they do fair, just, and explainable decisions. And then she goes on to tell us about how these organizations are implementing the recommendations, the framework and and changes at the organizational level and what are next steps on how to improve it. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do as well. Here is the discussion with Stephanie Kelly on AI ethics. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Today I'm speaking with Stephanie Kelly. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's uh, Monday afternoon or Monday evening here. So thanks for joining me. I guess Tuesday morning there for you. Yep, that's right. Really nice Tuesday morning. I've been looking forward to having a chat with you. Thanks for making the time. I wanted to ask you at the beginning about your origin story. How did you get started in the world of data? What got you interested? And what's the angle that you are most excited or interested about in the in the space? But how did you get started in the first place? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think I have maybe an untraditional background compared to some. I have a a fully business background. So strategy and marketing, that's what my undergrad is in. And uh, now, uh, you know, we're fast forward today. I'm doing a PhD in management analytics. So a bit of a backstory, but originally I was working in marketing, uh, marketing, trade marketing, sales analytics for five years, big company called RB. And I had some questions about data. So I ended up doing a master's in management analytics, kind of tinkering away. And pretty early on in that master's, as well I was working, I realized that there were a lot of unanswered questions related to data and particularly from the business side. So I saw a ton of research research, very, very technical, and then some research on the business side about kind of data, data culture, but I saw a big gap in between and and I kind of uh, dove headfirst in, let's say. So left my job in marketing and decided to pursue a PhD. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) I think it's a huge gap and a really important gap to fill. And what was the trigger point for the PhD? Had you already finished your master's at that stage? Had you go back to work? What was sort of like the final push that got (laughs) you to start the PhD? So that's really interesting. I I was right in the middle of the master's program. I think I was trying to apply some of the things that I learned in the master's programs. You know, we were learning new technologies at the time. You know, Tableau was really popular, getting into R, things like that. And I just realized how unreal 
realistic it was going to be for my organization to implement those things. And now CPG, you know, as a whole are behind or lagging in what we've maybe called the data analytics. And again, between different organizations, you know, you could have that as maybe a separate argument, but I found and I thought that it was just going to be really difficult to do the kind of work that I was interested in. And so I honestly thought first, you know, do I join a bank? Do I join a startup in the analytics space? I had lots of discussions around that, but they just weren't going to offer me kind of that like combination I was looking for. So the data side and the business side, I thought maybe consulting, but again, it was like, hey, where can I find this kind of perfect mix? It That's kind of where it happened. I mean, big change, no doubt about it. I have to be honest, like I have family in academia, my partner is an academic. So that definitely yeah. opened it up as an opportunity, maybe versus others. But uh, it was a, a big jump to leave a cushy job in industry and to go full time as a student. What surprised you the most about the transition or the change? I was shocked at how much time I was spending in the workday previously not doing work. And so, in (laughs) fact, like I used to do 12, 14 hour days consistently and I would be exhausted after seven hours doing knowledge work effectively and it's reading sitting by yourself it was just a huge shock to me I thought oh you know I you know pull all these seven day weeks all these hours but it's just not the same thing so that was a big surprise for me for sure definitely I um, (laughs) have had people working in my teams that are doing PhD programs sort of part-time well mostly the part-timers I've usually said something like well you know work just can't challenge you as much as a PhD program I always took offense of it. I was like, come on, working together here. Anyway, I think it's, yeah, there's definitely a different. Totally different. Just a totally different kind of work. And it was very different to be working on 25 different things at once. I'd say that's the skill set that you need in an organization where you need to work on one thing maybe for 25 days at a time in the PhD life. So Yeah, completely different. So much more intense. <laughs> Crazy. And why do you think we have such a gap between the business side and the analytics side, where it's even difficult to come across roles that are really interesting blend of the two, where in your case, it sounds like you're designing your own path. And I completely agree that that that's a need when you want to combine them in an interesting way. Do you have any thoughts on why at the moment and so far they've been kept separate like that and that we have this gap of you're either in one camp or the other, but difficult to have a blend of the two? I do, actually. I think there's probably two drivers, one on the organizational side and then one on the education side. So organizationally, I mean, you'll see many firms are now moving to a customer-centric model, let's call it. Put the customer first, shifting from business lines or product lines to kind of this integrated network. So traditionally, you would have the business strategists, the marketers all under one roof, and then the analysts or the statisticians even at the time the data people, the IT people under a very different roof. I think that from organizational role then translated into education. So you have people through one funnel going through business and marketing and prior to even kind of 10 years ago, even five years ago, there just wasn't a need because data science or statistics and things weren't being used 
for marketing and sales mm. and accounting and things like that. And so the design of organizations was then sent into education. So even, you know, very recently when I started my PhD, I actually started in organizational behavior program and then kind of begged the analytics group to let me in and be co-supervised by both groups. And that's changed, wow. you know, in the last two years. But even at that point, it really was kind of build your own adventure. A little scary, but. Yeah, but uh, really good that you're staying committed to the cause and making it happen. I find that that's really the research that we need in the analytics space, in business. We need to bridge this gap. So no, you're doing the good work, I think. Um, <laughs> we hope. So, Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And you hear a lot of people interested in those questions. So it's not for lack of interest, I think. It's just same thing in business. It's change. Change is difficult. Getting the logistics, getting the financial support, getting that. And you'll see there are new schools, the MIT school that's hopefully starting, I think, in the next year or so, just all centered around AI, has businesses, has engineering. That kind of mentality of customer, in this case, AI centricity, is starting to change. And so I, I think we'll see more research and more questions around the business and AI together. Yeah. And then how is it going to change the expectations of people at work in terms of their level of literacy in the space, being able to make data-driven decisions? Do you think that the pressure comes internally from within the business? Is it a competitive market dynamic that changes it? Or is it people coming in from new degrees and new with new education that has a, a combination that alerts to the capability inside a, a business? How do you think it's going to play? I mean, as a traditional marketer and business, I'm a believer in kind of the market pressures. And based on some of the research I've done, some of the organizations I've talked to, the real leaders are investing in basic AI education for all employees. So, I mean, even, you know, 90,000 employees having some kind of fundamental training on AI. So I see that being an advantage, a competitive advantage for organizations. And it's not to say that, you know, everybody will understand coding or understand, but AI is becoming such an integral part of many businesses. I think that competitive pressure will probably outweigh the education side. Education will catch up, but it, it takes a lot longer for educational institutions compared to the market. That'd be my thought. Yeah, so. And how have you found your research topic? How did you get to the topic itself, I guess, as a starting point? How, yeah. how did you decide what to focus on? So first, my detailed research topic is on the ethics of AI in financial services. When you write a thesis, you have to be pretty focused. So within that, it's understanding and preventing AI ethics challenges. But at its core, I was interested in why organizations don't use AI and analytics. So there's lots of reasons that we've looked at or that I looked at culture, organizational structure, but a major one that kept coming up when I started my PhD, really just from industry conversations was ethics. And tons of organizations are concerned or were concerned about even implementing AI for their customers, AI tools because of ethics and industry angle. It was an interesting question. And then to me, it's very meaningful. So as a PhD student, you know, the one question that you're spending 25 days on or five years on needed to be really interesting and intellectually and mentally stimulating. So mm -hmm. I wanted to pursue something that kind of had a positive impact and to me, that was AI ethics. 
Fantastic. Interesting that you were already having conversations with industry as you were fine-tuning your research topic, that you were already sort of gathering information yeah. from people's mouths as well as doing research in order to pick the specific topic. That's that's a great way to go about it, I think. Very, very customer-driven, I guess, or market-driven. Somewhat, in the yeah. sense of getting... I mean, that's the marketer right? in me, for sure. There's many different... Uh philosophies in academia about how to come across a research project or a research topic. But for me, it, it, as a business researcher, it, it always needs to be market driven. And then yeah. it had the, the added bonus of being important, an important question. Yeah, exactly. And since you started honing in on this topic, how has it been? What have you been uncovering? What have you been surprised about? Can you tell us a little bit about your research so far? Absolutely. I mean, I do it every day, so I'm always excited to get a chance to talk about it. The early stages of my research were as AI ethics was even just kind of developing. This is about three years ago now. And so the first piece was about uncovering the issues, just what are the challenges of using AI? What are the potential ethical issues, which today, kind of three years down the line, seem pretty obvious bias, fairness, explainability, privacy, you know. But part of that was actually developing a code of conduct. And here I was very lucky to be working with a group of the Canadian banks, so large Canadian financial institutions, and taking those issues and actually developing a code that's been adopted by several of the banks here. So that's kind of phase one, is just understanding what the issues are and aligning on some principles. So I know in Australia, I think it was in uh, fall of last year, well, I guess maybe different seasons for you guys there, September of 2019, <laughs> the Australian government released AI ethics principles. So kind of that mentality of aligning. The second part of my research, complete deep dive. So looks at gender bias in algorithmic lending. Mm -hmm. Very different, very technical. I know we had actually, you know, touched base uh, a couple weeks ago and you'd spoken about uh, the Shapley values. And so I was digging into this the, the last week. Uh, this is an active research project, but effectively looking at what laws exist across the globe and how they can either prevent or even uh, potentially paradoxically increase gender bias in lending. So deep dive there, lots of very interesting insights and really enjoying working on the maybe the super technical side. And then the third phase, which is also in parallel right now, is looking at adoption and implementation in organizations. So kind of what happens after principles. That seems to be yeah. the question on a lot of organizations' minds right now. So whether it's global principles or industry principles or white papers, most people are fairly aligned on what the problems are. Now it's what do we do? How do we get this into practice? How do we implement this in the organization, in the, from the data scientists all the way up to the executive level? So that's where the focus is today. Oh, fantastic. All right. So I'll ask you more about each of the three stages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so starting with alignment, it sounds like you did a bit of a stock take of issues or potential issues and then start to compare or from there build some guidelines and a bit of an ethics framework and obviously working mm -hmm. with these companies. Can you describe that process a little bit more? And can you give us, I guess, some tips for companies that would be looking to do that internally, looking to build an AI framework, AI ethics framework, something that maybe from that lens, what tips would you have for people that want and need to do it? And mm -hmm. how did you find the process going through it that first time on the alignment side? 
Absolutely. So I'd say uh, today organizations are really lucky because there are tons of resources out there. Three years ago, it was a very different picture. And the research that I started doing or, or that I did, there really wasn't literature out there on the issues. And so it was a lot of reading and a lot of qualitative interviews. So at the time, talking to data scientists, talking to CIOs, you know, everybody in between about what they thought the issues we're going to be. Because even three years ago, a lot of firms just weren't using AI extensively. Mm. They pilots and things like that, but that's not where the problems actually come up. So I'd say that was the development at the time. Today, there are a couple of great resources, kind of my favorites. There's a research study, but also kind of a blog from the Berkman Klein Institute at Harvard. And Mm -hmm. they have gathered about 50 different AI ethics documents from industry, government, academia, and they've mapped those all out and done a really thorough analysis of kind of what the common principles are across the different documents. There's about 11. And interestingly, you know, across countries, across different institutional groups, governments, they're all pretty aligned. So that's a great resource. An organization can effectively just go onto that website and read the different documents. So some of them are, you know, government, some of them might be more appropriate for an organization. More recently, a more comprehensive site has come up, and that's through OECD. So OECD.ai is a new policy observatory that they've created, and they are tracking effectively every AI ethics document around the world. It's in development, but right now it is a fantastic resource. So they have, I think right now, over 70 organizational-specific AI ethics principles. So whether you're a small shop, huge firm, you can go online and see examples, AI ethics guideline documents. But, you know, that would be the way forward. And it's all public. So that's, I think, the major difference, Mm -hmm. which is very positive as a researcher. People are sharing this. There's engagement around the same principles. So that would be my recommendation for organizations. Check out either of those websites and start from there. Pull, Pull the principles that exist and no need to recreate the wheel at this point in time. Yeah, exactly. That's really, really interesting. And within the principles that are published from what you've seen, have you had any surprises? Anything that stood out to you? Anything that you didn't expect? Can you share some of those types of things that you've come across during the the principles alignment phase and that research part? Yeah, definitely. The most obvious one, and this may be a low-hanging fruit, but would be the data privacy piece and the differences across countries. I mean, I think we we all know that with the COVID stuff in the news, and you can see the different understanding or preferences for surveillance across different countries, and that ladders down again to the data privacy side. So the EU kind of GDPR being the strictest and the how that ladders down to the EU principles versus China versus, you know, Singapore even. That is a big difference. And that's tied also to use and let's call it consent or knowledge of AI. So certain countries, consumers want to know that they're speaking to or interacting with an AI. Other countries don't care. And people see it as a really fundamental right is I have the right to know that I'm conversing or interacting with an AI or that I've, my data has been analyzed by an AI system. And you'll mm-hmm. see that again, somewhat linked to a pattern. So the countries who are maybe more comfortable with surveillance are generally more comfortable with that interaction or unknown interaction. 
that would be the biggest surprises, I guess, that I've seen. Yeah, when I think about uh, across the globe. And have you noticed, or staying on the privacy topic, have you noticed Mm -hmm. any big shifts or changes in the time that you've been doing your research, whether it is more countries looking or countries being more comfortable, kind of like giving away a bit of privacy in order to get some of the benefits from AI? Or have you seen the trend go the other way where people are more worried about privacy and there's there's more barriers or certifications that com- organizations need to show in order to apply AI to their data? Where have you seen the changes within privacy, if any, during the last few years or couple of years? Great question, actually. I think there was a bit of a come to Jesus moment when GDPR came out for some organizations and, and you saw that some firms were really underprepared. And again, it, you know, it applied globally. But a lot of the co- companies, I guess, that I've spoken to in the EU have said that they've been able to relax their privacy guidelines or their privacy initiatives mm. that they had in place. So that to me was a bit of a surprise and a bit of a shock. And so I think they were so strict in their regulations previously, in the rules they put in for their own organization, that they've been able to relax them a little bit, especially now that it's aligned across the EU. I think that was a struggle prior. Again, by no means am I a GDPR expert, but just talking to some of the organizations, if let's say they were in Sweden, where customer trust is really integral part. And so they were able to relax a lot of their privacy guidelines and kind of share between EU countries. That would be, I'd say, the biggest piece. By no means kind of a, an open banking or open access expert. But I do see that being a trend. I see that being kind of the next initiative, the next discussion, especially because of what's going on right now with the pandemic. I think mm-hmm. there we're in a very unprecedented time. And I think the decisions that are being made today about data sharing across countries and data sharing as a whole could have significant implications moving forward. I don't think ideally maybe they put in emergency initiatives in place around privacy, but I think that once you make that kind of data accessible, make that the norm, I think it will remain that way. Yeah, exactly. And have you seen any early moves during this pandemic time that have been significant changes that could stay as a permanent measure after the fact? I have not kept abreast of it, I have to say. I mean, I've been kind of keeping an eye on China, but I I did have an interesting discussion with somebody who works in Singapore, and they said that their company has completely rewired the building for biometric access because of the initiative. And so like what once was everybody swiping their card and there were no questions, they like immediately overnight changed everything to biometric access. So that's just a very small example. But again, it's like you can't go back from that. You cannot go back from that. That data exists and who knows what principles. And by no means am I saying like there are so many potential opportunities and amazing applications and that AI can be used for good. Like mm. I'm a huge believer in that. But I think that we need to always have our kind of ethics hat on when we're making these decisions because we can't go back. Yeah, agreed. Ah, really interesting. So with this um, privacy discussion, I think we started mm-hmm. going into your second topic around the... A little bit, yeah, actually. <laughs> so I thought, I thought we'd, um, we'd continue down that path. So the areas that you mentioned was privacy, fairness, bias, and explainability. So we might talk through the other ones in any order that, that you would like, and I'll, I'll ask you questions uh, along the way. As we go. 
originally the second paper, the second work around gender bias, obviously was about bias and fairness. And it's quite a bit of like work I originally did in kind of the philosophical side of what is fair, mm-hmm. what is equal. And interestingly, there is, I'm sure people know, just a massive, massive literature from the computer science side on fairness and, uh, you know, mathematical definitions of fairness. And as a business person, that's a, a very different literature that I had to tackle. And super interesting for me to come from more of the strategy and really the ethics side to this very computational side. And the gap that we saw, you know, my co-author and I saw in the literature was that there was not really any practical solutions for organizations. So there's these super hyper technical, very, very mathematically sound, theoretically proven fairness solutions, but they often didn't take into consideration the law, first of all, and what organizations could actually do. So that was like a, you know, a light bulb for us. It was like, what is going on? Again, back to the industry conversations, we talked to at kind of an insurance company here in Canada, a couple of fintechs, and several of them said between the, our US business and Canada and some work we've done in the EU, depending on what law we're working in, it's actually worse off for the customers. And the one that popped up was for women in the US. So in the US, they're not allowed in consumer credit to collect or use gender in decision making. And that's actually quite common in a lot of kind of developed countries. Canada, there's no specific law. Canadian. So there's a bit of kind of gray area. And we kept hearing this story that, well, when you actually don't use gender, when you don't have that information, we think that it's hurting women, was the short. And so what this paper does from a very practical standpoint is we have a real fintech data set, it's like 300,000 customers. It's from a country that is allowed to collect gender and use it in their predictions. And we compare models that use gender and that don't use gender. And then we take it a step further and we look at pre-processing and kind of different data collection and data massaging techniques. Can you use gender? Can you not? And what the implications are for anti-discrimination laws. So very kind of practically focused piece using a ton of that literature from computer science, but pulling out what could an organization actually do today, what's realistic, what's feasible, and what's legal, given the different jurisdictions. So interesting. And I think that that's somebody coming from the computer science side. I think that that's often <laughs> where we pull down. It's so interesting. And by no means is it a harp on the work because it, it's been fantastic. But just talking to even data scientists, data scientists in finance or in the banks, they're having difficulty implementing them. So saying that, you know, this research is great, but well, I don't, what do I do with it? Yeah. And so that was yeah. the hope. And it's all based on the computer science work. Exactly. That's interesting. And great to hear that capturing more information helps be fairer. So in this case, by capturing gender, you're able to, I guess, ensure and check that you're being fairer in the algorithmic decisions. Very much so. Very much tied, again, then to kind of the privacy and the responsibility piece. So so the policy implications are, yes, you know, you should be collecting that data, but with informed consent, with the right safety security, you need to be responsible for the output and the outcome. So gone are the days of saying, oh, well, I didn't know better, right? In the US, for example, they're just not allowed to collect data. So when Apple and Goldman Sachs has their gender bias credit card in November, they said, oh, well, we didn't collect that information, so we can't be responsible for it. That paradigm is shifting. Mm -hmm. If you are 
collecting that data, you need to be responsible not only for the data itself, but you become responsible for the outcome and the output. It's a complete paradigm shift in the way that organizations are responsible for kind of the output. Correct. And now that that expectation is is out there, then the pressure will continue to mount and more people will be working in this way. And I guess to play devil's advocate for one minute, is mm-hmm. any of this, I guess, extra governance, yeah. is it slowing us down at all? When you see countries that have different approaches to AI ethics, are countries with less restrictions moving faster in the space, in the field? Are we intentionally slowing down the progress in the Western world where we are being very conscious about and very deliberate about these decisions, knowing that it may not apply globally Uh and that as a result, we may start to be laggards in the AI race. Do you have any thoughts about that side? I do. It's got the, you know, the race to the bottom discussion, right? And that's the same. You could apply it to so many ideas. So, I mean, obviously I'm very biased because I'm studying AI ethics and I believe that it's so important. But I think the question, and I go back, I have to say I'm a very favorite Singaporeans. They are using this very outcome-focused regulation. So yes, you can gather all the data. Yes, we have open access and lots of sharing, but the organization is responsible for the decisions. So what that leaves is a ton of room for innovation in the development process. Now, Again, Singapore is a very unique country as well. And so we have to be cognizant of that in terms of the regulations and the power that is there. But a country like the U.S., potentially, where regulation has been very strict and in many cases prevents any work from being done because it just blocks it. So the example, the credit example, many banks just say, well, why would I bother working with AI because right now it has to be explainable and I can't actually use the data that I would want to use in an AI model. So I think it's more focused on the input restrictions versus output responsibility rather than the, is there a law in place or is there regulation in place? So for me, whether or not there's regulation, I don't really see a trend, but if there's that really strict kind of traditional human-centric regulation, that seems to be what's stifling innovation. So adapting and adopting the new regulations like the EU has done. I know there's lots of discussions on GDPR, but at least they put something in place. They're putting in place new regulation probably within the next year around AI. They've, you know, released a big white paper on that. And that's very, it looks like it's going to be very outcome focused, very much, you know, measure the bias, measure the impact rather than restrict the data collection um, or, you know, not, maybe not as flexible as Singapore, but somewhere in between. Wow, so to me, that's, that's the question rather than just, is there regulation as, as a whole? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good way to think about it. Really good insight. Thank you. And have you noticed any difficulties or complications for organizations that have more of a global footprint when they're having to manage and keep up with all the varying regulations in this space around the globe, especially as AI products are often thought of as something that you can roll out globally and sort mm-hmm. of have one solution kind of ideally kind of for the world as your market. And then in that process, there are multiple 
levels and differing levels of regulation in each different country. And it sounds like there's more, more and more of a move for each country to look to make their own regulations and their own frameworks. Have you seen organizations struggle to keep up or, or struggle to deal with that in any way? I think the biggest challenge, and it's evolving right now, is the principles to practice piece that I kind of spoke about, that third area of research. And so if you want to regulate AI, why not regulate it with AI, right? This whole reg tech idea, can you put in place some framework, some tool that effectively measures the ethics of your AI? And I think that's where the challenges are coming because there either is no regulation or the initial thoughts, the direction of the regulation, and then ultimately the values. So mm. I love the MIT work done on the autonomous cars, kind of in the Nature article and says like there are globally about three different buckets of ethics that we have, one kind of based in Confucianism, another a little bit more Western values. And so again, that, that goes back to an added value even if there is regulation and even if you could understand and have some alignment or at least some way to a programmatic way to input the regulation, the actual ethical values differ. Mm. So right now, a lot of organizations that I've talked to are trying to figure out an efficient but flexible way to put principles into practice. It right now doesn't look to be AI reg tech. That does not seem to be the solution right now. It seems to be something a little bit more traditional, kind of a governance framework or a process in place, something a little bit softer. And then the more technical side is flexible within a country. So how exactly you're measuring fairness, what level of explainability or what the privacy guidelines are, those seem to be left left by organization. I think that will be a big challenge moving forward in terms of can yeah. we actually roll AI ethics out in an efficient way without stifling too much innovation? Yeah, definitely a huge <laughs> challenge because from a regulatory perspective, they would have to get all of the data, like all of the loan applications, all yeah. of the decisions for all the loan applications, and then the performance of the portfolio over time to be able to study the ethics of the algorithmic decisions. Yeah. And that is in a very data heavy decision, right? So think about completely different industry or even in banking, HR hiring. There's a like, where on earth is that data coming from? How do you have a feedback loop? What data are you gathering for the decision making? So I think that that to me is the more interesting question. And by no means do I have an answer to that today. But this idea of how do we start to track the more data invisible decisions in an organization? Because things like credit loans and this very data heavy algorithmic trading, I'm coming from the finance side, but marketing, that's that stuff produces data that's very easily captured. What is more interesting to me in the future are the decisions that maybe aren't as easily tracked or don't traditionally produce as much data. How do we make sure that those are fair and ethical? Big philosophical question, but something I I think about about, uh, when I can't sleep. (laughs) So I'd like to move to the third bit, which I know that we've already started talking about And that's obviously around adoption. So how organizations can start implementing AI ethics. And that's where you were saying that there's a a governance framework component. There's a technical side. How are you seeing that organizations are grappling with the two? Do you have any examples that you could share and or any recommendations from your side? 
So I think the overarching context is important. And again, it depends on the country and the regulation that exists, whether or not the regulator has, or even the country has made some stance or taken a stance on AI ethics makes a big difference on what the organizations have done. And that's fairly obvious. If it's a big priority of the country, then it's probably a big priority of the financial institutions because it's an expectation. What has been interesting for me is the complete range of application or I guess adoption that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And it's all tied together, I'd say, in a nice, nice package. So companies that are really leaning into AI as a competitive advantage are leaning into AI ethics with that. It is very obvious. This may be a bias of, of financial services because trust is such an important part of financial mm. institution. So it's not necessarily true of technology or other industries. And in fact, that may not be the opposite case in technology, but they're leaning in with AI as a competitive advantage. They're leaning in with AI ethics. They have principles that they've developed, whether that's taking something from another company, kind of adapting it or taking EU or the OECD guidelines. The biggest variation is in that frontline adoption. And so most organizations have not implemented anything with their data scientists. However, many data scientists are implementing initiatives themselves. And I think that's been the, the most positive and kind of the most exciting piece that I've seen. Even if they say that, you know, oh, we don't have any AI ethics principles or frameworks or checklists, there's a lot of people working on AI ethics in data science. So I think the next step and what we'll really see probably, I've ideally said about the next year, I think with all the stuff that's going on globally, it will probably be pushed out about two years, but you'll start to see consistency across organizations and across teams on how they're handling AI ethics. Even if that's a basic checklist or all the way up to a standard operating procedure in an organization, but what are the things you're checking every time you're starting a new project? That to me is the big change. Today, people are talking about it. They're saying, oh yeah, we thought about this and we thought about that, but there's no consistency. Consistency to me is the important key. Just you have consistent principles, you have a consistent organizational strategy that's communicated everywhere. There needs to be that consistent process in place for it to be effective consistently. Very, very true. Is there anything else that you would like to see focused on or prioritized by organizations? Obviously, the consistency piece, super important and probably number one. Oh, actually, you, you tell me, is that the number one for you? Is there anything else up there on your list that you think organizations and or governments should be focusing on for the AI ethics piece? That's a really tough question. <laughs> I think the education of data scientists from the organizational side needs to be a greater priority. So even if that's just some basic internal training, but it, it cannot be, and that kind of goes back to consistency. So maybe I'm poking that a little bit too much, but some people are part of AI ethics consortiums or groups or you know within the organization, but it's not part of their training. So just how mm. people must keep up certain language certifications, things like that. I would love to see some of the major you know, online education sites having courses on AI ethics, just a greater visibility on the technical side. Mm. I think that will help push things 
forward rather than it being piecemeal as it is today. So not so much on the government side. I think they're, of course, they could do more, but I would love to see more education on AI ethics for data scientists. That's fantastic. And awesome note to end on. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your research, uh, your insights, your recommendations. I think they're they're extremely relevant and super, super useful for governments and organizations. So thank you so much for sharing your good work. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Of course, I love the chance to talk about my research. So thank you for that. And uh, always enlightening to talk about such kind of a positive topic. So thank you for the chance. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.